Welcome to the Word on Wednesday podcast for February 8. My name is John Mason. Thank you for joining us. This world has no importance, and whoever recognizes that wins their freedom. And that's just it. I hate you because you are bound. I alone am free. Rejoice, for you finally have an emperor to teach you freedom. So speaks the Emperor Caligula in Albert Camus' play of the same name. But did Caligula represent true freedom? History records he used his power in self-indulgent extravagance, no matter how cruel or disgusting. He did whatever he pleased. Many consider freedom as the ability to do whatever you want without external restraints. For the extreme capitalist, it means no market controls. For the extreme socialist, it means the power of the collective to impose its will on the individual without restraint. For the extreme hedonist, it means the license to follow the lusts of the heart. In his highly respected Sermon on the Mount, that we're reading in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus lays out the pattern for living that he expects of his people. Significantly, he doesn't simply set out a list of do's and don'ts. Rather, he opens up the real meaning of love for God in loving our neighbour. Let me touch on themes that we read in verses 21 through 48. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 37. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, 
for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, Jesus says in verse 21, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. You shall not commit murder is the sixth commandment of the ten. But consider Jesus' words, But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you'll be liable to judgment. He is saying that our angry or hateful thoughts are just as problematical as the actual action of murder. And, he continues, if you insult a brother or sister, you'll be liable to the council, and if you say, you fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. Anyone who thinks or says to another, fool or idiot, says Jesus, is subject to the fires of God's judgment, separation from God and from all that is true and good. A separation he likens to the fires of Gehenna, in the valley of Hinnom, outside Jerusalem, where the city refuse was dumped and burned. The judgment we think is only reserved for the literal murderer also hangs over everyone who is angry, bitter or contemptuous. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, Jesus continues, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Dr. Donald Carson comments, How easy it is to substitute ceremony for integrity, purity and love. But Jesus will have none of it. Before going to church, Jesus says, Ensure your relationship with others is sorted out. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, Jesus continues. Society often turns a blind eye towards adultery, undercutting marriage as a lifelong commitment. However, Jesus sharpens the focus. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. By labelling lust adultery, he reveals a deeper level to the seventh commandment in terms of the tenth, which prohibits covetousness. Jesus is not prohibiting sex. The sexual relationship between a man and a woman in marriage is a God-given gift. Nor is he prohibiting the normal attraction that exists between men and women. His issue is with the desires of our hearts, controlling our thoughts and behaviour. There's another theme, oaths. You've heard that it was said in ancient times, You shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord, Jesus says. There are Old Testament references permitting oath-taking, even in God's name. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 20 we read, You shall fear the Lord your God, Him you will serve, to Him you will cleave, and you will swear by His name. There are also references in the New Testament. Paul swears on God's name and calls on God to be his witness, as we read in Romans chapter 1 and verse 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 23, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 5. We also find God swearing oaths, that he will not flood the world again, 
as we find in Genesis chapter 9, that he will send a Redeemer, as we read in Luke chapter 1, that he will raise his Son from the dead, as we read in Acts chapter 2. All this swearing points to its real purpose, the importance of telling the truth. As one commentator has noted, swearing an oath makes the truth all the more solemn and sure. Why then does Jesus speak about swearing falsely? Jewish commentary on the Old Testament law in Jesus' day set out to define what oaths were binding and what were not. One rabbi taught that if you swore an oath by Jerusalem, you were not bound by your oath. If, however, you swore an oath toward Jerusalem, you were bound by your oath. The swearing of oaths became a game you played. Depending on how you played it, you could get away with lying and deception. It was against this kind of casuistry that Jesus spoke. By relating every oath to God, because everything is ultimately under God's direction, he presses the point of truthfulness. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no, he says. Who hasn't distorted the truth at some time or another? For example, to put others down and to push yourselves up. Or who of us has said, we'll do something and then reneged on the commitment? Another theme is that of rights. You have heard that it was said, Jesus says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Words of the Mosaic law found in Exodus chapter 21 and Leviticus chapter 24. The law is both prescriptive and restrictive. If an assailant knocked out another person's eye, one of the assailant's eyes is forfeit, but not the second eye. The Lord provided justice, but at the same time it prevented the escalation of feuding and bloodshed. Into this scene, Jesus now introduces a radical response. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Does this mean that Jesus' followers shouldn't take up arms, enter the police force, or become judges and magistrates? Commentators agree that Jesus is speaking about personal abuse towards his people. In times when we might suffer because of our faith, we should nevertheless stand up against evil for the sake of our neighbours. And another theme is that of love. You have heard that it was said, Jesus says, Love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Behind Jesus' words lies the deeper truth about God how good and gracious he is, both to the righteous and the unrighteous. He makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. If God is like this, what would our world be like if God's people prayed for all who oppose God? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, Jesus continues. People used to say how much better the world would be if everyone got back to the basics of the Ten Commandments. But this isn't what Jesus is saying. His diagnosis of the human dilemma isn't a matter of do's and don'ts. Rather, he sees a much deeper problem, the desires of our hearts. Indeed, under certain conditions, the muck of the bottom of our hearts surfaces. We all need God's help. And amazingly, this is something God is willing to provide. 
we get a glimpse of this where Jesus continues, So that you may be children of your Father in heaven. God wants to work within us to pass on his moral genes. He wants us to bear the fruit of the Spirit, fruit that reveals the work of God's Word and His Spirit in our lives. Jesus is telling us that our broken relationship with God has consequences, judgment and the fires of Gehenna. But as we read on in Matthew and the rest of the New Testament, we learn that Jesus Himself has paid the penalty for our self-absorption. Yes, we all like sheep have gone astray. But the Lord has laid on Jesus the penalty we deserve. He did this because God's nature is also to have mercy. When Jesus died, he took the penalty for our hatred, our deceit, our lust, our insistence on our rights, our lack of love. Where is our hope for freedom? In a long list of do's and don'ts? Or is our freedom found in confessing our broken relationship with Christ? and a heartfelt desire to honour him. Camus Caligula seemed free to do anything he wanted, but was he really free? The play concludes with Caligula facing his murderers, saying, I've chosen a wrong path, a path that leads to nothing. My freedom isn't the right one. Oh, how oppressive is this darkness! True freedom is not the license to do as we like, but the liberty to do what we know is right. So let me pray. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much our own ways and the desires of our own hearts, and have broken your holy laws. We have left undone the things that we ought to have done, and we have done what we ought not to have done. Yet, good Lord, have mercy upon us. Restore all those who are truly penitent, according to your promises declared to us in Jesus Christ our Lord. And so grant, merciful Father, for his sake, that we may live a godly and obedient life, to the glory of your holy name. Amen. People involved in today's podcast are John Mason, speaker and writer, and April Marks, a member of Christchurch Presbyterian, San Francisco. The prayers are from an Australian prayer book, 1978. The opening and closing music is from St Andrew's Cathedral, Sydney, under the direction of Ross Cobb. Please let us know if you have a question or a comment about this podcast. We'd love to hear from you.